Like I said, I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, to give context to where Randy will be taking us today in God's Word. Romans 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the reading and teaching of his word. Amen. Good morning. Happy to be with you again this morning. Um, Just a note before I jump into this text, Um, you'll notice in your your bulletin on the inside about Sunday school starting next week, um, we're going to be going back to our intergenerational Sunday school, this time on Christmas, and you can read about what we're going to be looking at, but that's an exciting time. If you haven't participated in Sunday school lately, um, next week would be a great time to jump back in, um, in that intergenerational Sunday school, the um, children that are a little older and can sit and discuss along with adults are in one section. Kids like me that like to make crafts and play games are going to go with me. So um, it's a, a great time to jump back in. So we encourage you to do that um, as a part of Sunday school starting next week. The Register Republic newspaper ran the following article on January 27th, 1972. Mother lifts car to save her son. Newport, Kentucky. Mrs. Norbert C., a 5'5", 120-pound brunette, lifted a 2,000-pound automobile off of her trapped son following a traffic accident, then dismissed it as nothing. She said, I knew my boy was under the car and I had to get him out. Mrs. C., 33, said Tuesday, I didn't notice the weight of that pinto. Her son, Mark, 11, was recovering today in a hospital with head and shoulder injuries. Mrs. C. of Melbourne, Kentucky, said she was driving home from a veterinarian's office and was distracted when the family Irish setter became sick in the front seat. The car ran off the road and Mark was thrown out. He was trapped into the car after it hit a pole and rolled over. Quote, Mark was partially under the car and was complaining of his shoulder and it was just a small car, said Mrs. C., a part-time secretary. Now, I've heard the theoretical story of people under unusual circumstances being able to do incredible things, like lift a car off of a child, but I'd never actually seen it in print until I read this newspaper article. And newspapers don't typically print wives' tales, especially in the local section of the newspaper. So there's certain weight to this being an actual, credible, real story. Does the reality of that kind of a story Uh, gain something in your mind? When it's not just theoretical, some person can lift some some car, but when it's actual people, Mrs. Norbert C., 
of Melbourne, Kentucky, does it make a difference that the characters were actual flesh and blood? In my mind, it makes a world of difference. It's one thing to hear a nice story, even a completely incredible story. It's cool to hear, but to know it's a real story with real people rooted in time and space, it just gives that story and the message of that story more weight. You can dismiss a fantasy. You can, you can get rid of fiction. You can chalk it up to nice ideas. But when it's someone's real experience, you just can't discount that. It really happened. So the meaning of that real thing, no matter how implausible the story, must be considered. There's an even more implausible story that a teenage girl betrothed to a respectable man gets pregnant outside of wedlock. And instead of shaming her or getting rid of her, he takes her as his wife, raises her child as his own, and this child works miracles, raises the dead, and claims to be the chosen Messiah of God. This is not just some made-up story, some fantasy, a nice Hallmark movie to play at Christmas time. It's the real story of God's honest truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. Proclaimed by Paul and the 12 other apostles, taught for generations from Christianity abroad, and spread around the world. The Apostle Paul here, in his letter to uh, the Romans, in this opening letter, he wants to make it crystal clear that the gospel is what he proclaims. It, It is true. It is honest. So in our text today, He's continuing his thought from before when he says uh, it was set apart that the gospel, he's set apart by the God, for the gospel of God, this gospel that was proclaimed beforehand for the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And now in verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. The New King James Version, I think, captures verse 3 in another way that I think is useful. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This morning I want to flesh out three ideas from this verse. I'm going to pick up on three kind of key words here. Born according to the flesh, born of the seed, and born of the seed of David. Those are my three ideas that we're going to look at here. It's things that Christians have believed about uh, the gospel from the very beginning and have believed consistently throughout history. And these three things come into question by people that are counter to Christianity and have almost as long as Christianity has been around. The gospel regarding the Son of God, who was born according to the flesh, he had an earthly life. Born of the seed, he had a family tree. And born of the scene of David, he had a royal line. He had an earthly life. He had a family tree. He's of a royal line. Let's pray and then we'll look into this together. God, would you help me today to uh, speak your words, your words of truth, your word of truth that has gone on for generations. May I not add to it or take from it. May I stay uh, true to what you want us to hear today. God, I thank you for your word and may we be enlightened by it. Amen. So the first idea here is born according to the flesh. Now, if you happen to have a New King James Bible, you might note that that footnote on the word born uh, also says to come. Um, Really, I guess uh, 
being born is kind of the ultimate coming, right? You're coming into the world for the first time. And Advent, as we heard, is uh, the season when we recognize the coming of Jesus. We remember at this time of year the first coming of Jesus into the world. We might hear this story, hopefully we'll hear it here and in other places throughout this season. We might hear it from Linus as he talks about it in the Charlie Brown movie. We Maybe we'll read it from a family Bible together or in an Advent calendar, little by little, day by day until Christmas Day. That story of, the, of Jesus, the gospel story, the coming of Jesus is an important story to tell. Jesus, uh, If Jesus didn't come to the earth physically, if he wasn't if it was more than just an idea, but was real. That's an important story. It's rooted in reality. If it's not true, if Jesus didn't come into the world, it can't affect reality at all. The gospel story is not an act of imagination. It's a report of reality. Paul puts it starkly and plainly in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. Listen to this. Without the resurrection, then we are wasting our time. But the resurrection is true. Jesus did live really and die and rise again. That's real. That's fact. And because of that, we are not in vain here. Paul says in our verse today that Jesus was born according to the flesh. Meaning Jesus had a physical reality. You know, Paul's traveling companion, uh, Luke, wrote in the introduction to his gospel, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, uh, were, those who from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an ordered account For you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, listen to this, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke wanted his friend Theophilus to understand the true story, the real story of the real life, flesh and blood, Jesus of Nazareth. So he wrote it down. He was careful. He investigated to write down the real story of Jesus. He researched the details Luke wasn't spinning a yarn. He was writing a report. And yet, today, there still exists skepticism that Jesus was an actual historical figure. In the article, Goodbye Jesus, on the Center for Inquiry website, atheist Jim Underwood claims that the whole concept that Jesus never lived, never existed, gets stronger every year. Now, he doesn't cite any actual evidence. But he says, Roman and Greek records, pre-Christian beliefs, and the Bible itself all support the thesis that Jesus never existed. Uh, Not in my Bible. It should be noted that another noted atheist uh, and scholar, Bart Ehrman, debunks Mr. Underdown's claim in his book, Did Jesus Exist? Ehrman said in an NPR article about his book, Paul knew Jesus' brother James, and he knew his closest disciple Peter, and he tells us that he did. If Jesus didn't exist, you'd think his brothers would know about it. So I think Paul is probably pretty good evidence that Jesus at least existed. See, people will claim that Jesus didn't exist, but the historical evidence of Jesus is, um, is absolutely undeniable. Uh, the Guardian newspaper wrote an article in April 2017 called, What is the historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived and died? 
In that article, they, they cite the fact that he's mentioned by both Jewish and Roman historians, as well as by early Christian writings. And they're even, he's even known by people that are not not very keen on Christians, like uh, Pliny and Tacitus, who called Christians pig-headed, and their religion a destructive superstition. They even knew the fact of Jesus' existence. Uh, they knew that he uh, died by the hand of Pontius Pilate during the time when Tiberius was emperor in Rome. There's other evidence, too, other sources that never question the reality of Jesus. There's the ancient writings themselves in the Bible that are both detailed and that give specific and, and sometimes damaging details about the life of Jesus. Again, Ehrman says, the Messiah was supposed to overthrow the enemies, and so if you're going to make up a Messiah, you would make up a powerful one, he says. You wouldn't make up somebody who was humiliated, tortured, and killed by the enemies. Now, the Guardian article and others acknowledge that the archaeological evidence for Jesus is slim. And modern amateur historians might be led to believe that, well, if there's no archaeological evidence, then how can we know that Jesus actually existed? But I wonder if we'll doubt our own existence someday. You know, the average lifespan of a CD or a DVD that's written in a computer is 20 to 100 years. 100 years from now, think about this, there will be no evidence of my childhood on all of those DVDs in my parents' basement. <laughs> in fact, in a few hundred years, in the most documented, uh, photographically documented time in history, you might argue, in a few hundred years, this will look like the Dark Ages because every one of those bites and bits will long be gone. See, archaeological evidence is not the most important uh, evidence for historical truth. If it was, you and I would be in trouble. So we can't necessarily find archaeological evidence of one particular person in one particular city in the course of three years, some 2,000 years ago. Even as historically significant as Jesus is, we set our calendar by him. Um, but there's just not a lot of physical evidence that Jesus existed from a physical point of view. Um, he just didn't leave a lot of physical evidence around, and neither will you or I. Actual historians agree. Archaeological evidence can be helpful in establishing a story, but it's certainly not the best or most reliable evidence. So the evidence of Jesus' existence, rooted in time and space, is compelling, even without the archaeological evidence. Just as Paul says in our passage today, Jesus came into the world he was real. But I would argue, and I would suggest that Mr. Underdown's position, though uh, as radical as it might be, is probably not the most dangerous position or prevalent one that there is. The, the real position that is the most disturbing is, does Jesus' existence even matter at all? Modern American culture has marked the reality of Jesus as completely irrelevant, insignificant in their daily lives. What's worse than saying someone doesn't exist is to say, it doesn't really even matter. But the Christian position is clear. Jesus really did exist. It's central to the gospel message that Paul proclaimed. That Paul says in Romans 1.16 is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. This Advent season, as you read the story of Jesus of Nazareth coming in the flesh some 2,000 years ago, does it matter at all to you? that it was real, that it really happened, 
that Jesus really existed? Or is it just a nice story to read before getting into the food and the presence? What does it matter that Jesus actually existed? To me, it means that my faith is not constructed by some human imagination, but by actual facts. If Jesus is not real, you can make up whatever you want about him, and you'll be right. It's just like Santa Claus. You can make up any story you want. But Jesus is real. He really did say the things recorded in the gospel, things that are sometimes hard to hear and hard to put aside. It means also to me that there's a shared reality for all of us. We're not constructing our own Jesus. We're not looking at the reality of the life, death, and and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth in some um, individual way. But we're agreeing together on who he is. We're rooting that ourselves in his existence, bound together in the family of faith. And to me, it means that this faith can be trusted in hard times. Facing suffering for a made-up story will make you give it up. But throughout history, Christians who faced persecution and even death held fast to this story of Jesus because they knew it couldn't be made up. John 6, 66-70, we hear this story. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that's the confession of a man who understands, no matter how hard the words of Jesus are, that they're the real words of life. And there's nowhere else to go. May I have that kind of conviction of truth of the words and works of Jesus Christ. This Christmas, ponder the reality of Jesus Christ, who Paul said in Romans 1, 3, descended from the seed of David. Jesus did live an earthly life. Not only did he live an earthly life, but he had a family tree, point two. Romans 1, 3 says he was born of the seed. Now, there are two, gosp- or two uh, genealogies in the Gospels, one in Luke three twenty three, and another one in Matthew 1, 1. Andrew Peterson, by the way, if you have never read or heard his song, Matthew's Begats, I highly recommend it. Uh, The best rendition of a genealogy I've ever heard. You might wonder why these genealogies are in the Bible. But all genealogies in the Bible are written to make a point. They highlight certain branches of the tree uh, in order to uh, make some claim about the character or, or, or bolster some statement that the narrator is trying to make. And now it should be noted here that Matthew and Luke's genealogies are really quite different for Jesus, right from the beginning. Uh, Matthew says Jesus' earthly grandfather was Jacob. Luke says it was Heli. Some people might say, well, there you go. Those genealogies are different, therefore they're made up. How is it that Joseph can have two fathers? Mark Strauss explains just how this happened. In, in Deuteronomy 25.5, it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must, marry out, uh, must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. To her. In other words, this law states that the, a brother of a man who died should marry his brother's widow to produce heirs for him. In this case, Heli, Joseph's father according to Luke's genealogy, and Jacob, Joseph's father according to Matthew's genealogy, were either brothers or half-brothers. 
When one died, the other married his widow, producing Joseph and his offspring. This would leave Joseph with two fathers, both Heli and Jacob, one a natural father and the other a legal father. That's what Mark Strauss says. One possibility is that Matthew's gospel is interested in, the, uh, in establishing the thoroughly Jewish and Roman line of Jesus, or sorry, royal line of Jesus, so he gives the legal genealogy. And Luke, interested in establishing the physical reality of Jesus, gives us the natural genealogy. That's one possibility. So as you read those genealogies, and I hope you do over the time of Christmas, you know, the names in those you might not recognize, but they're important to the people that had those names. So read through those genealogies. You're going to see some things that are very similar in those. Uh, you're going to see, even though they're, they're written in backwards order, Matthew starts from Jesus and moves back to Abraham. Luke starts at Adam and works his way to Jesus. You'll see some things that are interesting that are similar. There's Joseph, Jesus' father. Luke makes it clear that he was thought to be his father. Matthew says Joseph was Mary's husband, but not that it was Joseph's physical son. And of course, that's because both Gospels proclaim that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary as a virgin. The virgin birth of Jesus has been central to the Christian faith from the beginning. So there's Joseph, there's Zerubbabel and his father Shealtiel in both, uh, both of them. He, they come up in 1 Chronicles 3 as descendants of King David. Zerubbabel had returned from the exile in Ezra 2 and was instrumental in rebuilding the temple. Uh, the prophet Haggai says that the Lord Almighty will make Zerubbabel his agent, his signet ring, and will be his chosen one in Haggai 2.23. Another couple names, David and his father Jesse. David, of course, was the greatest king of Israel, the poet warrior king that ruled in the golden age of Israel and was promised a royal line forever. We'll talk more about him in a moment. You see Obed and his father Boaz, who was the husband of Ruth, the, father, the, uh, the faithful daughter-in-law to Naomi. Then there's Salmon, Nashon, Aminadab, Ram, Hezron, Perez, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. These are fathers of the faith, remembered throughout history in Israel and in the line of Jesus. What do these genealogies mean for us when we read them? What do we get from that? It means that Jesus' story had a story. Jesus has a family history. And his story is part of that larger story, told throughout Scripture. Abraham was chosen by God, not because of his purity or piety, but simply because God wanted to choose him. He called him away from his family, from Ur of the Chaldees, and brought him into a land and said, Everywhere you see is yours. You'll have as many children as there are stars. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the world. And then Paul later on in Romans uses Abraham to build the case that we are a part of this grand story. That when we believe in the Messiah, Jesus, we are grafted into this family tree as a part of God's elect. The family of Abraham was given all of the benefit of having a relationship with God and the law of God. And throughout their story, there are bright lights of faith. There's people like Boaz and David and Zerubbabel, people that keep the faith. But most of the story is, frankly, a failure. Failure to actually be a blessing to the world. Rather than following God in His ways, they turn against God. As the prophet Samuel uh, records, uh, he says in 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 8, 
And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. But God had mercy. Even when they rebelled against him and asked for a king like the rest of the countries of the world, God had mercy. He would give them a king. He'd give them a king that would bring peace and righteousness to earth. And as we're grafted into this family, it should give us comfort, comfort to know that our security in this family is not based on uh, ourselves, but is based on the reality of the promise of God. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God stays faithful. You know, last weekend I attended the funeral of my Uncle Jim Gosnell of Blairstown, Iowa. Jim was a man of deep faith. He loved listening to gospel music. Uh, his son Nick said that uh, they were fr- he was frustrated when they would get to the church second because he always liked to be the one to uh, welcome people at the door. And he firmly believed that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to save him from his sins. But in the last decade, Jim's uh, health had deteriorated and he was ravaged by the disease of dementia and Alzheimer's. He didn't have the same actions of faith or words of faith that he once had. But praise be to God. We are grafted into the family of God by faith and held there by God. John 10.28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jim was not snatched out of the hand of God by disease of dementia. He was held firmly in the family of God. And you and I can know that we can be held firmly in the family of God by faith. It brings me comfort to know that Jesus is, that sa- is in the same part of that family. In that family, he calls us brother and sister. So Jesus has a family tree. Finally, Jesus has a royal family. Paul proclaimed in Romans 1.3 that Jesus is born of the seed of David, according to his flesh. Now God promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7 that his son would be on the throne. And for generations that was the case. There was Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all of them good kings on the throne of Judah. But none of them as good as David. And none of them that continued on. None of them that would fulfill this passage in 2 Samuel seven twelve, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. When the nations were taken into exile, it was feared that all of that was lost. That last king on the throne is gone, and the throne is gone. But Jeremiah says in Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to seat on the throne of David. Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. So there's still hope, even in exile, that there's a coming king. The exiles hoped that it would be Zerubbabel, the physical descendant of David, that helped lead the people out of exile. And yet, once again, they're disappointed. He lived and died and never truly became the king in in the Davidic line that was expected. They were still looking. Alexander the Great uh, tore apart Jerusalem. The Roman Empire took its place. It seemed all was lost. But then, in the little town of Bethlehem, a backwater in the great Roman Empire, a child was born. The prophet Micah predicted it in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so Magi came from afar to worship him. Shepherds and angels declared his birth. The false king of Judah, King Herod, believed it so desperately that he would have every possible baby that might claim that throne brutally slaughtered to keep it from happening, but no earthly king could stop the magnificent plan of God who protected King Jesus, sending him to Egypt just as Israel was sent to Egypt and then brought him safely out to travel in the wilderness and proclaim the message of the prophets. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This Jesus was truly the king. His kingdom was not of this world. It was a heavenly kingdom, but he inaugurated it in his blood and brings us into it by faith. Jesus indisputably is the rightful king of Israel in the line of David and the promised Messiah. Peter in Acts 2 says this to the people of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the king in the line of David. And we are grafted into this family by the sacrifice of that King Jesus on the cross. By trusting in His sacrifice, we have a place at the table of grace 
We have a part in this story. We are a part of the kingdom of God. Paul, in this short verse here in the introduction to Romans, makes clear that Jesus was real, that he had a family tree, and he's the promised descendant of David, the real king of Israel and of the world by faith. This Advent season, I pray that we will remember and be impacted by the fact of this real Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good and true and real story that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins. This was predicted in Scripture from before and is fulfilled in Jesus. I thank you for this story and may we tell this story to each other throughout this Advent season and all all year long. May we remember the story that Jesus was real and he came and that he lived the perfect life and died in our place. God, I pray that the reality of, of this message would impact us and the people that we come in contact with. That, that we would stand up for that truth. That no, this isn't just a fantasy. This isn't just a myth. This isn't just a, a nice idea at Christmas time. But it is the God's honest truth that Jesus really did these things. May we say it in our words to each other and to people that we come in contact with. May we ponder it in our hearts as we um, celebrate this time. May we remember that Jesus really did come to earth. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.